Welcome to Digging In with the Missouri Farm Bureau. Janet Atkinson here with you. And we are joined this week by Brent Hayden. Brent is, of course, the founder and partner of the Hayden and Colbert Law Firm based out of Columbia, Missouri. And Brent, we wanted to follow up with you because the Public Service Commission recently issued a ruling that was not something we were hoping to hear. Yeah, it was um, unsurprising, but still disappointing news from the Public Service Commission uh, on the permitting of the Tiger Connector project, uh, for which was a, it's a spur essentially coming off of the main line for the Green Belt project that's running through northern Missouri. Um, and, and, you know, we've been, been working on this for, I guess, almost 10 years now. Um, and the, just to refresh, you know, on that original line back in 2017, 2018, 2019, um, I represented Farm Bureau and uh, in, in the original permitting hearings on that. Um, and that was a protracted legal battle. But eventually they did grant a, a permit to the Greenbelt Express Company to build a set of 345 kilovolt transmission lines across northern Missouri. It starts in Buchanan County and is going to run over to Rawls County in a, not a truly straight line, but roughly a kind of straight line across the counties in between. Um, and that's still the subject of some litigation and some challenges going on from, from both Cheriton and Monroe County uh, as to the approvals for that project. Um, it, it, as part of that, Greenbelt was trying to, to get permitted to cross Illinois to go into central Indiana with that line, that the line is supposed to start out in western Kansas and run all the way through to central Indiana. Um, they had been shut out of Illinois without any regulatory approval there. And so I, I believe it's the reason this is the reason they did it. I mean, they're, they're saying they wanted to access other markets as well, but um, they came through with an alternate proposal to then come south out of Monroe County across Audrain County and into Callaway County with a spur line to tie into a converter station there for the project. And so um, they had to go back to the Public Service Commission. Grain Belt had to go back to get their permit approved for that line, for that spur line for what the, that they call the Tiger Connector. And so um, I represented the Farm Bureau and uh, several other of our Ag Association allies, Cattlemen, Missouri Pork Association, uh, Missouri Soybean Association, and Missouri Corn Growers all came together. I represented them uh, in a challenge to that permit before the Public Service Commission. We had a hearing for that back in June, and we're awaiting the results from the Public Service Commission who handed down their ruling last week. And of course, as we said, that ruling did not go the way that we had hoped that it would. Um, giving, giving them the okay, of course, to move forward with that Tiger Connector without having to go back to the drawing board at all. Um, what have you heard from landowners that both of these lines are impacting? Well, the landowners along the lines for these projects have the same frustrations that I think landowners have in lots of places in Missouri and around the country when they deal with uh, utility companies that, that exercise eminent domain, particularly at the commercial scale, which we see with this project. I mean, to be clear on these, these 345 kilovolt lines, they're not like residential lines that may just, you know, come down parallel to the gravel and come into your house to bring power to your house. These are big, massive H poles in the case of the main line, or they're going to be on monopole structures, but still very large monopole structures as they come down through Monroe and Audrain and Callaway County on the Tiger Connector project. They take up a big footprint 
they take up a lot of the sky in front of you. I mean, these are big structures. And so, um, you know, the, uh, the frustration, of course, always with, with eminent domain use for landowners is that, uh, and then this project's been sold like all others, is that, you know, this is for the common good and it's great for America and it's going to be so good for everybody, um, which may or may not be true. But, but the frustration is that, you know, where you have this resource that's going to be used by everybody, you put the burden on a very few people to live with uh, the structures and the inconvenience of having to deal with it. And of course, the, the the Constitution guarantees that you are paid fair market value when there is that sort of taking of your property. But I think what's becoming more and more apparent, particularly with these massive lines and some of these bigger utility projects, is that you know fair market value is all fine and good, but most states don't really have, and Missouri is one of them, don't have a definition in the law that's set to compensate you for the long term inconvenience that that's there, and to um, really compensate you for the loss of your decision of when, where, and how you get to sell your property. Uh, that is a significant part of the bundle of sticks, that part of the decision of when, where, and how you get to sell your property. And that gets taken away from you in an eminent domain case. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's the biggest thing is that landowners uh, are dealing with the reality of a company that's coming here from out of state. Um, it's a massive privately held uh, fund. Uh, that um, it's not even publicly traded, so it's really hard to get information about the internal workings or governance of, of, of that company. I mean, ultimately, Greenbelt is owned up chain by a company called Invenergy, um, but it is a it is a large out of state interest that's that's put together as a massive private equity fund, and they get to show up and tell you that you're going to sell them your land whether you want to or not. That's the main frustration. Um, secondary frustration that, that we see on you know all eminent domain cases is the concern for from landowners about the way that these projects will tear up the ground because and and look Greenbelt hasn't broken ground yet and so I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that that what I'm speaking to here is specifically goes to Greenbelt. This is just the general concern uh, that landowners always have is that you you come in whether put in a, a power line or a pipeline or whatever the case may be. Um, your ground gets torn up and um, it doesn't get put back the way it was. Now, there are certain protocols that Greenbelt on paper is going to be required to follow by the Public Service Commission. Uh, I'm hopeful that they will do so conscientiously and we'll see. As to, uh, you know, and that this is, these are what they like ag mitigation protocols for putting the land back to the way it was and, and leaving it the way they found it. Um, but this is a major concern in general in utility line takings for landowners. Because, and I've seen it in cases I've worked on, I've seen the pictures, I've, I've heard the horror stories. There are places and times that utilities do not do a good job. You know, that they come through and clear cut a timber line or they come and work through a crop field of, of getting that ground back to where it's, you know, a usable state, where it's not an eyesore and, and where they're stewarding the land the way they need to. So another major concern for landowners and, and um, there's real trepidation on the front edge of this project being built as to whether, you know, they'll be taken care of the way they should be. Now, I do understand that there are a number of landowners along the, the route that already signed on prior to any kind of court ruling. Um, have you heard anything out of those folks? So, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of landowners. I represent some landowners in their private capacity on this and, um, yeah, I mean, I've I've talked to a lot of landowners about um, their concerns both before and after the permitting within this project, and 
And, you know, obviously um, having the permitting come down from the Public Service Commission uh, doesn't make anybody feel any better about how things are proceeding here. Now we're calling, the Missouri Farm Bureau is calling for PSC reform in general, but the, it also extends, as you said, beyond that to eminent domain reform. So where do we go from here? Well, I mean, yeah, because these are, it's, it's interesting you ask it that way because, yeah, people need to understand these are really, these are interrelated concepts, but they are slightly different issues and solutions going on here. The Public Service Commission really is there to permit companies to be able to sell power. Um, a lot, I think a lot of folks, we get the conception that they're the ones that approve the use of eminent domain, but that's really only sort of incidental. I mean, right now, state law gives eminent domain authority to any any electrical utility that's in any comp anybody, any company that makes electricity of more than one uh, megawatt that they're going to sell for a profit can go to the PSC and get approved to sell it. They have to, they have to go there to sell it. But the right to use them in the domain is actually already built into state statute. It basically just says if you're a company and you're going to sell electricity, you have the power to use them in the domain. I joke sarcastically, but I, I think it's true under the law that in theory, if somebody wanted to run a hamster, you know, run a hamster wheel and an electrical line from their house over the top of a neighbor to another another neighbor down the road and sell them that electricity, they would have the power to use them in the domain to cross their neighbor to do it. And that's a little, obviously, a, <laughs> I hope an absurd illustration of, of how people would use it. But but really, that's what the statutes say. They that and, and these statutes are old. I mean, they go back to the 20s, the 1920s. Um, and you can't say the 20s now, I guess, know what we're talking about since we're in the 20s, but you got to go back to the 1920s. And I think, the, I think you know, people hadn't, the legislature or anybody else hadn't really thought through exactly what that was going to look like 100 years on when you have massive projects. And so um, I think we need to have more rules governing when, who, and how eminent domain can be used. And and that's that's one big issue. And then there's the issue of, there is also the issue of PSC. I mean, the PSC's main job historically has not been as much to, to approve the construction of these completely new projects. It's been to, to govern rates, but they also do have this function. And what Greenbelt Express is, is, is it's one of the first to come through Missouri of what they call merchant transmission lines. So these are, the, the distinction is unlike door-to-door -door retail utilities that bring power to, straight to your door, like your rural co-op or some of the private uh, utilities we have in Missouri. This is a company that just is, it's there to build big lines that carry a lot of electricity from point A to point B, but not necessarily back out to your house or only indirectly. Um, and, you know, they're, they're held by private equity. They're not publicly traded. They're not in a cooperative model. They're not owned by your municipality or the government. They are private companies. They are effectively building what are pipelines, but in on aerial lines, and they're going to, you know, they're going to either sell that electricity themselves for a lot of money or they're going to eventually sell the infrastructure uh, that they build to another company for a lot of money. Um, and that's another part of the frustration, just as an aside, that, you know, a lot of landowners have here, which is that you're essentially being co-opted through eminent domain into these, into a, a large equity funds, American dream where they're going to make a lot of money, but there's not some option for you to come along and do that. I mean, even wind towers and solar panels and and further west of us oil and gas i mean some of those are controversial but no matter how you slice it for the farmer or rancher they at least get renewable every year income that kicks off of those in the form of a lease or a royalty or both 
that's not the structure of this. The structure of this is they make a one-time payment to buy you out of this easement strip and that's it. And so, um, you know, they'll, you, you'll fight back and forth about how much they're going to pay you. If, if you ultimately can't come to an agreement, you have the right to go to court and get a jury trial on that. But one way or the other, there's going to be a one payment and they're going to walk away. And that project may have a 30-year or 50-year life or whatever the case may be. They're going to make a bunch of money on it, but the farmer gets paid once. And mm-hmm. so um, that, that kind of goes to, back to the question of the imminent demand PSC reform. I mean, imminent demand reform needs to go to the questions of how much do we, how much do farmers and ranchers or landowners in general get paid and why? And then also go to the issue of what does the utility company have to do to make sure they take care of your land, restore your land and provide minimal inconvenience. I mean, a good example, obviously for these lines, they could be burying a lot of these lines. It does increase the cost factor, but companies have been unwilling to do that. Well, that's not because Obviously, that'd be great for the farmer or rancher, but they're unwilling to do it because it's more expensive. They're not doing it because it's not practical. It's, it's, it can be done. The technology is there to do it. It's just more expensive, and they don't want to write that check. Um, similarly, outside of, um, I think this, this is sort of an isolated occasion where we do have some regular, regulatory controls in place for grain belt that's supposed to make them restore the land when they build the project. In general, we don't have that in Missouri, and so those are some of the things we need. Now, when you talk about the PSC, before, you know, we want, I want, agribs want, I think farmers and ranchers should be interested in reform for the PSC because there's no guarantee in Missouri that the Public Service Commission will have any representation that's, that's friendly to agriculture on it. And so the, the way the PSC works is, you know, there are, there are rolling uh, spots on that commission. There's five commissioners. When those spots come open, whoever's sitting governor can appoint the next commissioner spot. Um, and, and you move ahead and there's no real, uh, there's no geographic or vocational requirement for who gets on it. I mean, in theory, we have all of our PSC commissioners be from St. Louis or Kansas city or, you know, anywhere in the state. And so, um, a lot of ideas have been floated, but I think in general, what we want to see is a broader, a broader, uh, representation on the PSC in terms of a guaranteed regional representation, at least some guaranteed rural representation, um, We've, there's been plans floated to expand the footprint um, where you have to have at least one PSC representative from each congressional district, for example, much like what we do with like our curator board in Missouri, so that you at least assure that you're getting, you're getting some representation from around the state that way. Um, those haven't borne fruit yet. And, and I, that's not necessarily the only idea out there, but that's a good example of, of what folks will see with PSC reform. What I also, as a practicing attorney, would love to see with some PSC reform is some change in the underlying law as to how they make their decisions. Because they, they much like our eminent domain regime, have a pretty archaic system right now of law going all the way back to the 30s that gives them a very broad uh, set of authority to, to make their decisions based on what they think is in the, the public interest or um, what's going to be cost effective for citizens. And when you look at some of those definitions, in the law for how they make their decisions, a layman would look at those and say, well, that's not what I think of when I think of the public interest. Um, I think of, is it good for the public? Or, for example, there's, there's a test in, in the laws to whether there's need. Well, their definitions that they apply for what it, whether power is needed are pretty different than what most people would think of as need. Most people would say need means, do we need the power? Do we need the electricity? And, and, how to, and, and you still have a debate about whether you need it and what does it mean to need it. But that's not really how they make their determination. So we need some underlying change, 
some underlying uh, work on on how they make their decisions. And I also think there, there needs to be some way to review, ultimately review their process um, for elected officials beyond just judicial review, because um, it, it pretty much they have broad, you know, as do many agencies, the courts have given them broad discretion to pretty much do whatever they want in making these decisions. It's very hard for citizens to go in and challenge a PSC decision and win, no matter how you slice it. And I think that's a failure to me. It's a failure where we, if we have, if we have administrative agencies to make decisions that, you know, that, that majorities, democratic major, democratically elected majorities would never agree with, but you just have to live with them. I think that's a problem. Um, and I, and I, so that's the sort of reform that we need for the PSC. We need reform both in terms of who gets on the PSC and some guaranteed representation. And then we also need some reform in terms of the underlying laws, how they make their decisions and what, what decision they have authority over. Now, of course, we can talk about what we think needs to happen, PSC reform, imminent domain reform, but how do, how do we make that happen? I mean, what's it going to take to move the needle? So it's going to take what it always takes for us in agriculture, I mean, which is that um, we have to organize, stay together, stick to it. Um, it's the things, you know, agriculture, thank goodness, has managed historically for the last hundred years to punch above its weight relative to its numbers by being organized. And we have to continue to do that. We have to stay organized and, um, and stick together. So we have to go to the, ultimately we have to go to the legislature and say, we need reform. I mean, that's where it comes. Um, and so that's at the state level and potentially eventually at the federal level. I, I'm, I am concerned that a long-term challenge we will have, it's probably, this is probably a more to, of a 10 to 20 year challenge, but, uh, right now, most of these eminent domain takings happen under state enforcement regimes. Um, we need some reform there, obviously, in Missouri, and, and farmers and ranchers need reform in other states as well. I do think eventually the federal, the Congress, the federal government um, may take some interest in expanding uh, what we call quick take authority, so fa a fast track eminent domain authority for energy companies like Invenergy or others um, so that they can take vast swaths of ground across the country under federal authority without having to go to state court. I mean, we've seen that happen historically in America before with the interstate highway system and the railroad system. And I'm afraid we're headed that direction again. And so we're going to have to stay very organized and, and after at the state and the federal level to let legislatures know that landowners and landowner concerns are important as well, that these are ultimately, these are ultimately civil liberty issues when you have private property that uh, private companies and state governments and federal government is, is just sort of trampling on to say, well, this is ours now because we think we have a better idea of how to use it. And that's ultimately what a lot of this comes down to. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's the same deal we've got for every other problem we've got where we've got to get political reform. Um, you've got to stay involved. Obviously, Missouri Farm Bureau and American Farm Bureau Federation are a huge part of that. Um, are uh, used part of that equation for farmers and ranchers and have been for a long, long time in terms of supporting landowner rights. And that's why I believe in the organization so much and think it's so important and think it's so important to be a member um, because that is a way to collectivize our voice. And it's a way to, um, it's a way to multiply our strength in a way that individuals can't. I mean, I, it, it's, and I see it every day. I know that sounds like a very sort of pie in the sky kind of answer, but I see it every day as a working attorney. Um, Really, I always joke in America, you know, you can pretty much do anything you want to, to people as long as you only do it to about 300 people a year. And, and that's because, you know, it's, it's very hard 
with with individual problems and individual impositions on your civil liberties to or civil rights to get people uh, to get collective action where you can you know go to the legislature and say we need a change in the law because and and but when you come together and say yes these are these are 300 instances a year but it could happen to any of us and so we've got to have reform in the law to protect all of us that's really what we need then it becomes a whole different deal because then you have a collective voice that says the legislatures look rural voters care about this urban voters care about this by the way as well i mean it is interesting to note that you know for a lot of folks living in urban areas they face a whole other set of challenges with eminent domain having to do with light takings by developers and things like that so there actually is a really interesting set of uh, a potential set of coalitions here between urban and rural voters on these issues because eminent domain does ultimately affect a lot of people it just doesn't do it all at once and so we've got to we've got to get ourselves together that's the answer though in the long run we've got to stick together and we've got to let the legislature know that that rural landowners and property owners in the state are not just there to sort to sort of donate all their donate their their life and time and their ambitions to these private out-of-state companies so that they can make a bunch of money well brent we appreciate you giving us an update on this and of course we'll continue to follow along as uh things continue to develop because of course it's not going away uh if folks wanted to reach out to you in the meantime how could they get in touch uh, you can call to me anytime uh, via email at my email, which is Brent, B-R-E-N-T at showmelaw.com. That's S-H-O-W-M-E-L-A-W.com. Um, or you can call my office. And if you go to showmelaw.com or on the internet, you'll find our site and find our number. All right. Well, thank you, sir, for taking the time to chat with us. We appreciate it. Again, talking with Brent Hayden. He is with Hayden and Colbert Law Firm based out of Columbia, Missouri. Joining us here on this week's Digging In.